Welcome, listeners, to the Religious Studies Project. It's been a while since you've heard my voice, and I hope that you're going to hear a lot of it today. Uh, my name's Chris Cotter, and I'm joined from across the other side of the Atlantic Ocean by... Dave McConaughey. It's so nice to be with you again, Chris. Yes. In 2020, no less. 2020, yes. Uh, new year, new decade. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, I know. Fresh start, lots of plans ahead for the RSP. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we were going to spend uh, the uh, festive break uh, trying to enact a lot of our plans, and that that maybe didn't happen, but uh, but there's still a lot of exciting developments. Um, before we talk on too much, though, um, this was a podcast I recorded, Dave, so perhaps you might want to just tell the listeners yeah. what's coming up. Absolutely. Today, Chris is joined with uh, Vizian Asimos and, and Tim Hutchins and Suzanne Owens, uh, a wonderful trio for you to talk to. And all of them are speaking about media and the study of religion. So take it away. Welcome, listeners, to a special roundtable episode of the Religious Studies Project. Uh, we had hoped that this would happen at the BASR uh, 2019 conference at Leeds Trinity, but um, everyone was too busy, too tired, over-podcasted, and so we thought we would convene um, later on um, online. And we're talking about media and the study of religion. We've had a few podcasts um, touching on this topic before. You know, we've had uh, one that... um, Tim, who you'll be hearing from a moment, was involved in about um, religion in the news. Um, we had Temu Tyra talking about religion and the media. Um, but today we're going to be taking a much uh, broader approach, I think, to the notion of media and the study of religion. So mediation and the various media in which um, that can occur. So um, I'm just going to allow the uh, speakers to introduce themselves and say a little bit about how media um crops up in their work so um for those who don't know i'm chris cotter i'm one of the uh, uh co-founders of the religious studies project um and i'm going to let other people speak first before i scrabble around to try and think about how media comes up in my work but uh, vivian you're first on my list here um who are you and and what's media for you <laughs> uh <laughs> quite a big question regarding uh, my work. But uh, so I'm Vivian Asimos. Uh, I recently got my PhD at Durham University, which is currently where I'm still uh, acting as teaching assistant on several kinds of courses. Um, and I study virtual storytelling, primarily looking at the internet and video games. So lots of media that I'm looking at in different types, uh, sometimes even looking at it historically, how things used to be uh, historically speaking for the internet, obviously uh, not quite as breadth of history as maybe some other people are used to looking at, um, but seeing how things change over time um, and also how this impacts our ideas of supernatural or communication of religion, uh, those kinds of things. So, yeah. Excellent. So, uh, well qualified to be at this table, this virtual table. Um, this podcast that's being mediated um, to the listeners' ears and we're recording it via the internet so it's already a case study in that um and then we've got uh suzanne owen yes i and i'm reader in religious studies at least trinity university and just say that the four of us are in four different locations um so that's um that, that, um possible because of media 
um, digital media. And my in my research, I've not focused on media per se, but it has had come in different forms. So in my work with the research in Newfoundland, I've been looking at not digital media, but uh, I guess you might call it hard media. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Artwork and museum exhibitions and how representations of particular indigenous groups are um, portrayed and um, and the discourse, you know, and that the text that surrounds it and what they're emphasizing or what they're hiding. Um, but I guess more directly with digital media, with the project that Timu Tyra and I did with the Druid Network on the registration as a charity for the advancement of religion, there was quite a lot of media discourse that we included in our study um, to show the different responses to that registration. Excellent. Um, And then I guess sort of the the driving force behind this podcast is uh, Tim Hutchings. Hi, I am the Assistant Professor in Religious Ethics at the University of Nottingham, Um, but I'm mostly a a sociologist of digital religion. For 10 or 15 years, I've been studying, you could say, the the opposite of the kind of approach that Vivian takes. So my my research began by looking at what particularly Christian institutions were trying to do with digital media. Um, So very formalised, institutionalised, traditional versions of religion uh, trying to produce forms of online community or online ritual that they could recognize as proper Christian church. Um, and from there, I've been, I've been fascinated by that ongoing struggle in some ways, maybe, but of uh, institutions that are quite slow and ponderous sometimes to get to grips with a fast moving medium, um, the whole set of media, um, the, one of the things I've particularly enjoyed studying around that field is seeing the number of projects that don't quite work out. Um, the study of religion and media is often the study of disasters and failures and things that are quietly forgotten as quickly as possible. Um, um, but I've looked at projects like uh, attempts to encourage people to read the Bible through digital media, um, attempts to create online communities, attempts to produce uh, religious mobile apps um, um, and some kind of emerging conversations online around death and grief. Uh, and at the moment, I'm looking at a video game, um, but it's a video game produced again by a Christian organization to try and uh, teach children about the Bible, um, more or less. Um, so those are, the, those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. Excellent. And Tim, you, you've also got a journal as well that we should probably mention. Yes, thank you. I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal Religion, Media and Digital Culture, um, which is published by Brill in collaboration with the International Society for Media, Religion and Culture. Excellent. And we'll try and link to that um, from the podcast page. And as I said, I would uh, let other people speak before trying to come up with something on this end. Um, so my research, um, you know, I, I work broadly looking at non-religion so basically anything that uh, could be conceptualized as a relational other to religion um primarily my work has been uh, interview based and ethnographic um but sort of an interesting way in which i guess you say mediation comes in is i've done a, a good bit of work looking at 
uh, the built environment and and how um, well particularly my field site from a PhD was Edinburgh South Side, but how um, the South Side was was felt and um, how people's non-religious lives were sort of impacted upon by the sort of Christian hegemony of the spaces and all the the, the sort of conversions and um, uh, things like that. So a, a little bit on sort of how space um, can be seen as, as mediating discourse, um, but then also, um, of course, especially when you're looking at atheism, etc. There, there's so much stuff online and you've got to pay attention to. So a bit of that. And then, of course, there's also the, the production of media, which we'll probably be talking about as well. There's the Religious Studies Project here, which you're listening to, I suppose. Um, and Vivian, you've also got a podcast. I do. I have the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, where I interview different people in the field of the study of religion and popular culture. Unfortunately, Tim and I keep missing <laughs> dates on, on being recorded for it. But um, I've gotten quite a few people that approach things from a variety of different perspectives. Um, and I use popular culture quite broadly, I think, to encapsulate all sorts of different types of medias and media types and um, even just the things that we take for granted as being around us every day. So, yeah, it's check it out if you like podcasts and religion. <laughs> well, presumably people who are listening have at least some sort of passion <laughs> in, in podcasts and religion. Um, OK, I thought we could kick off a little bit because, as I say, we meant to try and record at the BASR 2019 conference, um, which Suzanne organized. And the uh, one of the words in the title was media. <laughs> um, so um, maybe Suzanne, you could just tell us a little bit about what the, yeah. the conference theme was and, and anything that came out of it for you. And then as we we're all there, we might have some stuff to offer. Yes, um, I when I was um, asked to organize the conference, I immediately thought of my colleagues in media, film, and culture to help co-organize it because I'm the only person in religious studies at my institution. And that was turned out to be really great collaboration, with, um, particularly with Stefano Odorico, who is a documentary filmmaker, and he's really interested in developing uh, new digital skills among students and also in research with interactive documentary filmmaking in particular. And one of the things when we were discussing various titles, um, we didn't want to make religion too prominent because he thought that it would be off-putting to people from his side. And um, mm. so we came up with visualizing cultures, colon, media, technology, and religion. In the end, it really was a BASR conference, as most of the participants were BASR people. But I think... Um, it was also trying to emphasize that, you know, uh, religion is not uh, a rarefied thing, I suppose, it's just part of a bundle um, in this title. And also to try to emphasize the kind of collaborative um, projects that might be happening or interdisciplinary projects, which I guess religious studies is by nature for the most part, um, but in the way that we might be using different disciplinary skills in the study of religion in order to um, do our research. Mm. And so, yeah, so visualizing cultures seem to capture everything that we wanted to bring to the conference and to allow, you know, people to come that might not ordinarily come to a BASR. And we did get a few participants in that group that 
they came because of the theme. Um, and most of them did do a kind of study of religion of some type, but not all of them. And so that was really good to see. Excellent. Yes. Um, I mean, I saw papers um, to do with, well, there was James Capolo talking about um, archival work. Um, we had um, Vivian and Jonathan and a few others, you know, presenting about um, virtual worlds. And, and I remember Michael Dudek um, at a sort of, it was quite an innovative paper it was d- developing uh, a sort of virtual constructed religion. I think he called it the temple of artifice. And so his presentation was very interactive and very on the nose. And I guess sort of uh, pushed us to think a little bit about, you know, what we're doing in the study of religion. Like, can we be constructing things in that sort mm. of way? It was quite excellent. Um, yes. It is interesting that um, Michael Dudek's, um, project where he's deliberately creating a religion digital that's digitally available to participate yeah. in um in some ways we are doing the same thing but we what but we think we're doing it i guess we think we're doing it for real i guess and it's really good to see that actually what we're doing is just as constructed and fiction fictionalized i mean i would probably argue that what i'm doing isn't for real and yet is yeah. at the same time so know, yeah. uh so yeah i because what i'm i tend to look at is constructed fictional narratives that people are are engaging with so these are ones that nobody is nobody's working at it from say the perspective of michael of you know we're trying to form this into something um very seldom does that happen uh, and yet it tends to take off in that direction. And so very often it's that sense of real, but it's not simultaneously. Yeah. And I think uh, it kind of reveals a lot of how we actually do see the world as not always being these strict dichotomies between fiction and reality, but that they can be blurred and they often are. Uh, and that the internet and the way that the online storytelling really works ends up actually revealing that to us. Yes. And what Dudek produced was actually real as well Um, and actually that word reality and real was used quite a lot in the conference by participants (laughs) I noticed yes it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine (laughs) do you want to say some more about that Vivian you've got the airtime yeah sure Um, it's this sense and you see it a lot even outside of the academic circle of um, the real world versus the online world or the virtual world or the digital world Um, And essentially what that's doing is painting this virtual world as being completely not real. And therefore, all communities formed, all relationships had, um, all experiences are therefore painted as not real um, because it's being pit up against the physical world, which is the real world. So I pit for physical world rather than Mm -hmm. real to distinguish um, because I don't want to take away from the experiences that, that are actually being had that are very really felt by participants um, by painting them as exactly. not real. I mean, what is qualitatively different from the experience that someone is supposedly having, whether it's mediated through um, sound or in a particular building or through radio waves or through the telephone or the television or online or in a field or whatever you know these are all just different media that are 
being utilized but yeah there is definitely a a current bias um towards the online world as being in some way not as authentic yeah as i'm sure we would all agree um for many it can be more quote authentic than uh, the physical world yeah it's interesting because this distinction in fantasy fiction is similar where they have primary and secondary world and primary world is meant to be the real world but there is no real world in fiction you know or any kind of representation um and you know and also it's creating a false boundary really so I um, struggled with this a lot when I was doing my research about online churches uh, to try and work out what what would be the other thing that I was distinguishing these from. Um, and I could I started off thinking, well, it's online churches versus offline churches. But that doesn't make sense because lots of those offline churches have um, websites or some sort of online presence and maybe you communicate with the pastor of the church by email or something like this they're they're not digital free spaces um but they're they are mediated differently in some way um and physical to me didn't quite work either because we use physical technologies of course to to connect with digital communications as well as as anything else um so i ended up talking about the online and the local, um, trying to, to catch that sense of a thing that is defined by the place where it happens rather than the media through which we, or the digital media through which we communicate it. Um, but it's still not quite right. Um, mm. Yes, the terminology. The, the other point that I wanted to catch there is that um, one of the moves that is often made in the, the conversations I hear um, is to say, well, the online and the offline are no longer distinct at all. And we, we need to abandon this binary, um, which also doesn't quite work for the groups I'm looking at, because the value of the online space is partly that it is not the face to face. It. It is so as as Vivian was saying, I think it's it's real, but it's it's sort of not quite real at the same mm-hmm. time, which gives you the freedom to be more playful. Um, um so the the Center for Media, Religion and Culture in Colorado at the University of Boulder has been talking about digital as a third space, um, which is helpful, I think. They've they've been writing about this for years and years. Um trying to to focus on the as ifness of a, a place that is sometimes treated as if it is real and sometimes treated as if it is just a game um and used as a as a space to reflect on what happens elsewhere um because one of the things that i found in the very kind of clearly bounded online spaces i was looking at uh, where people would say well you know this website is my church or whatever it might be um, they would use those to then reflect on everything that was happening elsewhere in the world. Um, but that would include face-to-face and Facebook and other, the rest of internet culture and the email conversations that participants had with their parents. So everything that happened outside the boundary. Um, so the, there was a really important distinction between what happens inside the boundary and outside the boundary, but it wasn't drawn in the same place as the online and offline distinction. And it wasn't quite in the same place as the real and virtual distinction. Um, 
but it was important to people that this was different from a serious exactly. real place. You I could think be a actually, little playful. Uh, if I'm correct in remembering, country. Vivian, it came up in your paper at the BASR how there's often this notion that um, I guess we can't trust what people say online or, you know, like, but actually what can happen is that people's online expressions can in some ways be maybe sort of less filtered and more quote real than they might be in face-to-face social interactions. Am I, am I remembering correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And it obviously is going to depend on individuals, but what I found was that at least when talking with say academics who have a bit of a bias (laughs) against uh, virtual worlds to kind of paint something more broadly there, um, they tend to say that because things can be anonymized, therefore you can't trust anything. Um, what I found during my fieldwork, as well as just from my own personal experience of living in various uh, online spaces at various points in my life, um, is that there was still an identity that is tied to the username. And often users can feel more empowered to act in a way that they might not be able to. So for example, if I'm on, say, even just an academic forum, and I'm using a username, I might feel more compelled to be more um, uh, strict in my opinions, because I'm not going to feel like I'm going to be questioned Mm. for being a woman. Like I might if I'm in a physical space where people can look at me and see that I'm a woman. Um, So I might feel more willing to express myself uh, when people can't tell how young I am, how female I am. Um, so, and I see this play out even online as well. Um, and I interestingly had uh, strange responses when I was conducting fieldwork where I had people reaching out to me to discuss their, you know, their experience on these forums, but they would use throwaway accounts, which essentially means that they would create a new account solely for the purpose of our communication and then immediately get rid of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was because they didn't want what they said to be tied to their identity. So they were anonymizing themselves through what other people see as an anonymous username, because it's not an anonymous username. It's tied to their identity there. It's tied to experiences and lingo and neighborhoods that they prowl and uh, experiences and relationships are all tied to that name in the same way that you know, those same exact things are tied to, you know, my Vivian Asimos name. Yeah, excellent. So it's interesting that although we're trying, if we're trying to have this broad discussion around media and the state of our, our focus is quite naturally being drawn to, I guess, online, digital, virtual, and so on. And I guess that might be because it's the, you know, it's the, the latest medium of our times. Um, I guess we were having this discussion around the time of the printing press or the telephone or the television and stuff, you know, our conversation might be differently inflected. So maybe um, because Suzanne, you mentioned working with sort of, I guess, more, um, I guess we could call it traditional forms of media. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts um, on, on your work there? Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it is the same kind of research because uh, I'd interviewed artists and about their artwork and of course some artists say they write um, they portray their art in a kind of 
non-conscious way. But I was still able to elicit some kind of discussion about the themes that they're interested in. And because they were all depicting an extinct indigenous group in their artwork. And I thought it was a way that they could show their relationship to that subject in a non-verbal way, which offered an interesting insight that was different from the way that written texts or museum exhibits represent that group. And I did. I thought I got a really different kind of um, perspective. So I think different kinds of media can bring out different kinds of uh, insights for sure in research. And it also reminds me a little bit like when I used to do theater, there was one time during just for ourselves among the group that were doing the play, we did an experiment with masks where we were wearing different masks. It's just to remind me of what Vivian was saying with online identities and how the mask then becomes the focus of your interaction. And they're no longer the person behind the mask, but the mask could be sort of male, female, androgynous, animal, human, um, alien. And our relationship then just completely changed. And I think that's the beauty of different kinds of media, that you get really different kinds of responses and interactions. Absolutely. Um, Time is bizarrely moving on as it tends to do um and I, I do want to get to um the idea of how media uh, can be utilized in in the teaching of uh the study of religion um but i, I couldn't resist getting a, a comment in here about how um uh, i'll be interested in your thoughts on um much of the work that i encounter that that seems to be taking a, a media approach or looking at media in relation to religion um, a lot of it tends to to trip up on that sort of critical problem of there is something there that is being mediated I guess in a lot of uh, a lot of this work is oh, sort yeah. of the assumption is there is religion or there is I guess a deity or whatever that that is being mediated through things um rather than perhaps taking a more social constructivist approach. I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on that. Yeah, as we were saying um, before we started recording, that um, the idea is that sometimes researchers think there is religion out there and that is being mediated through various you know, things like news or digital spaces, whereas we should really look at stuff that's out there that gets mediated as something. Maybe maybe as religion and discourse. It's a discourse analysis kind of approach mm. where we can't assume that there is something that exists prior to the discourse about it. You know, that religion is not a priori in that sense. Yeah. And I, I guess, um, you know, Tim, you've been talking about working with, uh, you know, churches and churches in online spaces. Like, How, how did you... Um, did you wrestle with that? You know, like I, I'm just allowing the group to, I suppose, define what it is. And then I'm looking for that being mediated online or, you know, like, like how did you go about um, your setting your boundaries? Yeah. So the, um, um, around this, this question of reality, uh, thinking back to my early research in online churches, the, um, 
outside of those online communities, one of the big conversations about them was whether this should be considered real church or not. Um, which, from a kind of sociological perspective, is not a very useful category for me, because, of course, there are a lot of different Christian traditions. They all define what is a real church differently. People from those traditions mix up together in online communities. So if you actually push the question, you'll quite quickly find that people may agree or disagree about whether what they're doing is real within the same group um, and just politely don't mention it very often. Um, so I I tried to allow groups to define themselves um, and just said, if, if you're calling what you do church, then I'm interested in finding out what it is. Um, but while, while keeping in mind that ambivalence, I guess, that, that, well, who gets to decide whether this group calls itself church or not? Um, in some cases, the person who set up the thing decided, let's call this the church of such and such. Um, but actually, if you had conversations with people who had been participating there for 10 years, every day, multiple hours a day, they'd say, oh, well, of course, it's not really church. Um, so it was a, an inherently undefined word. Um, and when people did want to claim that word, they often didn't want to do it in ways that yeah. traditional Christian authorities would uh, respect, shall we say. So they might want to say, okay, so traditionally my group has said that church has got to do these particular rituals and you've got to have this particular authority structure. I don't really care about that. What I care about is that I've made really important friendships here. It means a lot to me that this is a space where I have very important relationships and real emotional commitment. And so I call it church. And how dare you question whether this is church for me? Are you saying my friendships aren't real? Um, which is fascinating because that that is not, that that is, an, uh, I don't know if it's a new way of thinking about church, but it's a um, a way of thinking about what is real that is different from the institutional tradition, perhaps. Um, so I, um, in line with this question about what is there a previous, like a, a pre-mediated thing, um, there are conversations in the study of religion, media and culture for many years now that I've found really helpful trying to reconceive religion itself as a kind of mediation. Uh, so people like Jeremy Stollo and Birgit Meyer and others have argued that um, any study of religion and media that frames it as religion and media, as so though there are two separate things, um, is not catching the really interesting part of the study, of the, not the really interesting part of the field, um, which is that religion itself is always mediated. Uh, religion itself can be understood as a kind of media or a set of practices of mediation. Um, certain things that are permissible or forbidden or expected within a certain group that uh, make connections between the human and the non-human. Um, and I found that really helpful uh, as a way of positioning what I'm interested in, in this very current study of digital religion, um, as part of the same kind of thing that all of my colleagues do in their studies of religion across across centuries. Um, yeah, I, I considered trying to get mediating or mediatizing or something into the title of the podcast. I might put might might, might make it media mediation and the study of religion or something just to, to emphasize that. Um, Vivian, I know that you you um, sometimes use use the lens of myth. 
in what you're studying as well so again how do you um how do you decide when it's religion that's being mediated and things like that (laughs) (laughs) um i tend to not be too bothered about the word religion which uh might be a bit strange to say as somebody who is a religion scholar and in a religion department um but that's how I see myself because I don't think anyone really knows precisely what religion is. And therefore, how do you try to go about finding it if you don't know precisely what it is? Um, so myth to me is a, is a much more useful word than religion, although probably has just as many problematic definitions throughout its history as religion does. <laughs> um, but I see myth as being essentially defined by the individual or the community which means that it's not up to me, kind of like what Tim was saying of, of leaving the community to kind of define for themselves what matters and what doesn't matter and what words matter and what words don't matter um, and seeing how mm. they connect to a narrative uh, in a very meaningful way. So um, I, I tend to focus more on myth than on religion because of that. Uh, so I am a mythographer as well as a religion scholar. Um, <laughs> uh, and it, it has gotten me into trouble in the past. And that's interesting in itself to think about how we as scholars are mediating our own understanding of religion uh, onto our own discipline. Where uh, So in my first year review board, I was asked why I was in a religion department if I'm not looking at religion, which I felt like I both was and wasn't. Um, mm. So it, it's interesting to be told time and time again that you're not studying religion when you feel like you are, but in a slightly different way, because essentially mm. we're ascribing our own understandings onto our own disciplines and mediating that through our own you know, podcasts. I think and the problem is that and books everyone that does know what religion is or, you know, says that they or thinks that they do. And so that's why there's so many ideas about religion yeah. because everybody is so sure that they know what it is. Whereas I think that there isn't something there anyway. Um, like, I guess, with any kind of thing, even you know, with any kind of um, abstract subject. It is obviously mediated and created and um, born out of Absolutely. relationship and dialogue and discussion and what people portray uh, or what they define as. So comparing definitions is one of the first things I do with students in first year is to show that there are many definitions of religion um, and there are some essential differences or between these definitions and what does that say you know about it what are they emphasizing or what are they selecting and excluding to create this thing called religion that they've defined it was an ongoing sort of disagreement i had with my own supervisor about whether or not you should define what you're researching and of course i'm seeing it more as those that i'm researching are defining terms yeah, so um, in response to what Suzanne was saying a moment ago about the discursive approach or discourse analysis approach to, to religion, um, an advantage or disadvantage, depending on how you look at it, of that kind of approach, I think, is that actually the word religion is very rarely yep. used by the people I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, unless they're trying to step back from their kind of engaged experience and be more analytical about it and say, well, maybe this is a kind of religion. Um, in 
in Christian context, it's quite common for people to say, well, this is not religion. Religion is the bad thing that we have done, that we are better than religion because we are spiritual or something like that. Um, religion that is mostly imposed by academics onto the field in things like uh, Vivian's yeah. department meetings. Um, <laughs> religion is a real thing because we study this. Um, but then in, in, in reflecting on what Vivian was saying, I had similar experiences myself. Um, and that's maybe a useful pointer for people listening to this podcast, if, particularly if you're just starting out in an academic career. If you're studying something unusual and exciting and to do with pop culture, at some point yeah. somebody will say, yes, but is it religion? Exactly. Um, and even if that is a made up word that doesn't really exist, religion departments do exist. Those are definitely <laughs> real. Um, and it's a question that it's worth, you know, it will come up at some point. It's worth having an answer to it. Um, so it, it, when people asked me that question, I was left slightly taken aback. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, worth worth anticipating it before it arrives. Absolutely. So that brings us quite nicely, I suppose, to our final question. And we're a little over time, but we're going to run with it because uh, we've been talking there about um, students and about supervisors and about how the the subject of the study of religion, whether that's religious studies or sociology or religion or anthropology, etc., how how we um, mediate um, the very topic. Uh, but I wonder, uh, Tim was mentioning before we started, um, how um, institutions are now increasingly wanting us to, to incorporate media in various forms into and I wonder if anyone's got any uh, thoughts about that or any useful stories or uh, any useful failures and things like that. This is actually something that more recently I've been engaging with, but not um, using things like the internet or podcasts so much as using the um, kind of more, I guess, traditional media, primarily of pictures uh, with my students. Um Normally, as a teaching assistant, you tend to not get quite as much creativity allowed to you when it comes to teaching. Uh, but I've been able to play with it a bit this year because uh, there's a new first year module that we've kind of shifted study of religion to being a worldviews approach by Douglas Davies. Uh, and the whole conversation on how he structured this and whether or not it's successful could probably be an entire podcast episode in and of itself. So I'll kind of skip over that. Um, but because it's a bit more experimental, it allows us as teaching assistants to also be more experimental in our uh, seminars. And one of the things that myself and Jenny Riley, who's a PhD student at Durham University as well, have decided to do was to do photo elicitation, mm. but as a teaching uh useful tool rather than as an anthropological uh, interviewing tool. So I, one of the ideal types that Douglas has set out was a natural worldview. So I asked students to take a picture of what they think embodies a natural worldview. Um, and then we sat around and we chatted about all of the pictures that we had uh, in a variety of formats, asking them very solid questions like which picture makes you feel uncomfortable and then we'd sit around and talk about why they had picked the, the picture that they had um, and it ended up revealing a lot more about how people saw the world differently from one another, uh, which is always very difficult to get to, especially at Durham, where most of our undergraduate students are all from a very similar socioeconomic, racial and geographical background. Um, so to 
be able to pull out their inner thoughts through the images actually was incredibly useful. Excellent. Yeah. I had a really good um, experiment with our first year students in intro week, you know, just as they're just coming in and being inducted. I had them take a photograph of what they think is the heart of the university to represent it with, you know, taking a photo on their mobile phone and then to send me the photo. And then we can look at the different images. And I got really nice spread um, from quite obvious choices like the chapel or the bar or uh, the coffee place, but also some more sort of creative ones like there was an image that they took of themselves uh, to show that the students were the heart of the university. And those are the ones that came to mind. But So I'm interested in getting students to produce media to and hopefully in the future to actually make more sort of media. We've already had them doing little documentaries or podcasts mm. but, or digital things, but maybe to even make a kind of, of something more inter- like interactive documentary filmmaking in the future is what our university specializes in. Yeah, I think there's a lot of scope now that everyone's got a sort of portable, well, now that most people, I should say, at a typical UK university will have a sort of portable media studio in their pocket um, of producing video content and audio content. I'm just, one thing to throw in there, I, I, I've always had these great intentions of uh, doing a lot of innovative things um, that never quite packed time. Um, but what I've started to try and do, um, I was getting a bit fed up um, constantly typing up um, comments on students' um, essays. And I noticed that in our uh, in our sort of marking suite, it gave the option to record audio. And I thought um, that this might, because you can get a lot, more over in the tone of your voice um, that the, the, the nuance might not come through in, in text. So I've started to try um, where I can to, to offer audio comments on essays. And I've also offered um, audio feedback on like dissertation submissions and things like that. It's just, I think it's a way to, you can really emphasize what's actually important and they can also tell from the tone of your voice. Um, you know, if you, actually do like something or and you can be a lot more reassuring where things can come across maybe quite harsh in text form so that's a that's a way i guess i'm trying to incorporate more innovative things into teaching but it's it's on the assessment side and how about you tim well from my uh, well from my point of view um having been in this field of research now for 10 or 15 years um I've gone through quite a journey of trying to persuade universities that what I do is a really significant thing that is worth having in their department. Um, because to start with, people would say, well, you know, digital seems a bit niche. Um, so I try and present media as our, as our lens onto studying what really matters, whatever that might be. Um, or perhaps considering media, as, as we've been discussing before, as a, as a way of thinking about religion itself and, and how religious worldviews and experiences and practices really work. Um, and what's actually taken me a bit by surprise over the last year or so is to realise that actually the research I've been doing, as I slightly pejoratively introduced it way back at the beginning of this podcast, is basically about big, clumsy, traditional institutions struggling 
to adapt and catch up to a media world that they don't quite <laughs> understand, but they're pretty sure that the young people are really into nowadays. Um, that, that's basically the story of what I've been doing for, for my whole career. And suddenly I've discovered joining a university department that that's the institution I've joined. That's exactly what they're doing. Um, the same conversations that I used to study uh, from you know, the Pope writing in 2002. I've now got the vice chancellor of my university saying in 2018, um, almost word for word, repeating the same arguments. Um, and the the digital has gone from being a niche topic that a few people study to uh, an imposed agenda for our teaching programs. Um, it is necessary to ensure that students are learning digital skills for the workplace as well as traditional humanities, essay writing and examination skills. Um, and so very suddenly I found that I'm required to attend 105 different committees and think tanks and organisations, all of which will plaintively say, well, we feel like we should be doing something digital. Um and that's going to be a, a rapidly changing environment, which is very interesting to watch. But um, starting to have university or, or university-wide conversations that are ongoing about how we ensure that every lecture is recorded um, and how we then ensure that anybody watches the videos. And do we then have any data to suggest that watching videos of lectures actually help students learn? Um and how do we replace essays with new forms of assessment that might teach some digital skills? And in that case, is there any way we could actually teach some digital skills to the teachers, uh, which is a bit of a problem that, that is emerging, I think. Um, it's very easy to say all students need to do a video assignment. But apart from Suzanne, who has a huge advantage from her colleagues at uh, Leeds Trinity, um, those of us in kind of traditional theology and religious studies departments probably don't have a colleague who does a lot of video. Um, so there's a, there is a, a hope that sometimes comes up in some of these meetings that of course our students nowadays will have all of these digital skills. So maybe the students could teach some of those digital skills to the lecturers in order to have them taught back again for assessment. Um, so that there's not... There's not exactly a, a solution to that at the moment that I see. It's uh, it's a um, it's also a program that, by its nature, seems to be essentially evolving. Um, once you've decided that your institution will invest heavily in technology, you then need to upgrade all of the technology next year, <laughs> forever. Um, and once you have taught everybody how to use one system, you need to then give them a refresher yeah. course on the next system. Um, but uh, so in my own teaching, I'm introducing a new assignment um, that will uh, require students to produce videos or podcasts and reflect on that experience. Um, but uh, there are a lot of technical challenges to doing that. Um, it turns out when everybody in your class has their own video making device, but none of those devices are compatible <laughs> with the other devices, uh, you can actually spend weeks trying to work out how you actually upload all of those things into the university system so that they can be stored properly and assessed through an online marking system that was not set up to do any of this. Um, 
there, there are probably not enough technical support people in the university for every class to have somebody who is full-time just reminding the students which cables they need to use to plug their phones exactly. into things. Um, yeah. So there are challenges, but uh, it's interesting to see. It's nice to study disasters sometimes, as I said at the start of this. Those can be very informative. Yeah, I often find that by the time academics are paying attention to something, it's already out of fashion. <laughs> right, um, we've talked on a lot longer than I intended, but it's been an excellent discussion. We're going to have to wrap it up for the sake of our, our poor listeners, our poor transcriber. Um, but thank you all so much for joining me on the Religious Studies Project. Thank you very much for inviting us. Um, thank you for listening. <laughs> It's such a great delight to hear the continuing conversation about media and the study of religion. As a podcast, Chris, one of the things that we really have is this opportunity both to participate in the theory of the discussion as well as the kind of creation of some of the new landscape uh, for media and the study of religion. What are What are some of your thoughts about having been involved with podcasting and using that kind of media to study religion for so long. Yeah. Well, I think I was planning to mention that in the podcast itself, but I don't think we got round to it. It was a couple of months ago. Um, yeah. I mean, podcasting certainly for me is a, is a excellent medium. It, it's your own sort of personal curated radio station. You know, you just get to, spend your time listening to programs that you're interested in. And uh, I hope that we've made our way into um, some of our listeners' sort of regular listening habits. Um, it's, it, we've struggled a bit on the, the RSP, I think, to, to get beyond the um, sit a scholar down, talk about their most recent book, send them on their way kind of sort of back and forth conversation. But I think that format is appreciated. Um, and I think that, um, w w one of the key things about podcasting in religious studies for me has been the way it, uh, it allows access points into research, um, that, um, busy researchers may not have time to read and that, um, interested students and members of the public might be trying out. Um, what is religious studies all about, or what is this specific topic, and that allows, yeah, a more a more free form approach, a more conversational approach, which I think is quite important to democratizing knowledge, and it provides a a free output in a sense. If if a scholar's worked on an article or a, a book, and and we come along for a conversation, they get to to put it into their own words in a conversational style, which means that the the publication's getting cited and might get people directed to it, but it's also a, a very easy way to to take your research and um, and um, translate it and sort of republish it in a different format um, that can often be much more accessible than perhaps some of the the denser writing styles that we have. So, um, how about yourself after your? Uh, you're sort of four months at the helm of the RSP and with your other experiences. 
One of the things that I've been really surprised in, and as I was preparing to kind of, you know, enter into that transition, I was doing a lot of research about what the landscape of religious studies podcasting looked like in in late 2019. And there were a number of new podcasts that were either about to launch or, or were um, launching at the same time as Brianne and I were, were uh, stepping into the managing editor role. So there were podcasts about contemporary kind of evangelical political stuff. And so my interview with Brad Onishi about straight white American Jesus. Uh, but there's also new podcasts uh, from the Sikh professor, Simran Jeet Singh, uh, who is doing a much more kind of social justice and maybe more um, uh, politically oriented in the sense of speaking with political leaders and real figures out there in the field. In, in the country and in Canada as well, uh, who are making a huge impact uh, through their actions and their uh, employment and their businesses. And then uh, just this past week, uh, there was a new podcast launched called Religion 101 by Megan Godwin. And um, uh, they are, are doing so many um, interesting things now that I think it, it's still a really lively, thriving space where there is room for conversation. The new books in religion and the new book network has so many wonderful opportunities for people to kind of really discuss at length their larger projects, but for smaller projects, for themes, for specific topics that might be discussed in undergraduate classrooms, we still are kind of, I think there's still a lot of room there for us. And I'm hoping that the RSP can continue to kind of find that niche of conversation tied to research and tied to scholarship and tied to the big issues and ideas that challenge our, our, our field. And so I'm so pleased to be involved with it. And the work that, that the RSP has done with media is so important for that, I think, because it really expresses that kind of um, metacritical analysis that we're self-aware that we are both engaging in the object that we're talking about, media, and also trying to understand what its influence might be hmm. on religion and religious studies. And so I think there's that back and forth that's that's really valuable. And so I'm I'm so pleased to to kind of be involved in what seems like such a thriving area of scholarly production right now. Excellent. Yeah, and and just uh, before we we wrap up, um, I don't know if I'll be letting the cat out of the bag here, but um, listeners should be aware that um, at the moment our Patreon subscribers and um, some other um, member organizations have access to some additional content that we've been producing. Um, our Are You My Data episodes, which are sort of more um, conversational and slightly irreverent uh, in engagements with uh, big hitters in the field, but also our discourse episodes, which um, we've been putting out every month which are taking a sort of critical religious studies look at contemporary news stories and their intersections with this problematic category of religion. Um, and we've been thinking that actually this is, this is one of the things that it seems to be really missing in, in the existing, um, podcasting output, certainly, but also in many other forms, scholars offering hyper relevant recent comment from an RS perspective and um, we've I think as a body decided that we'd quite like to to start putting that content out um, to to everyone and um, publicly because um, 
Yeah, it, it's become a, a solid good format and it is really demonstrating sort of RS being done um, and being relevant. Um, so hopefully that'll be another uh, string to our bow, as it were, um, that people can look forward to soon. Of course, you should still subscribe on Patreon. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're hoping to to really kind of create a a a third avenue maybe for for our patrons to really develop their their chops not only supporting the work that we do but also engaging in some of those conversations as well and so we hope that the patreon support continues but we're hoping to try to find ways to really make those discussions and conversations that we're having with scholars a little bit more accessible and a little bit more uh, available to the wider public as well um, next week uh, we have a really exciting um, uh, interview on this issue. In fact, um, do you want to say what we've got going on next week? Yeah. Since uh, I think I know a bit too much about the interview that happened. <laughs> yeah, well, we have uh, a, an, an unknown voice um, on the RSP. A certain Dave McConaughey has uh, been speaking with the least Morganston first about religious literacy is social justice. That's the title. So um, there's a lot going on there. Um, a lot I imagine that some people might take issue with or might be sort of rapidly in support of. So I'm looking forward to that and to, to hearing what sort of reaction it gets. Um, but I think, you know, come back for that. We, we've actually got, I think, three responses. If they all come out, we've got three responses lined up for this week's podcast as well. So um, and do Absolutely. keep checking back on the social media feeds and on the website. But um, I think all that's left to say is our usual, um, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Buck, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.